Welcome to episode 137 of This Week in Linux, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tunnell. And if you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. Coming up on this week's episode, Ubuntu announced that they are working on a new desktop installer. Cloud Linux announced the beta release for their CentOS replacement called Alma Linux. There are some big changes for this year's Google Summer of Code, and it has some people disappointed and even considering about not participating in it. We've also got a lot more distro news to discuss with a follow-up to the iPad-like tablet distro, Jing OS, as well as an update for Solus and Endeavor OS. Then we'll check out some new updates from a new supported devices website for Ubuntu Touch, and in app news, we've got some new releases from KDE's App Suite and LibreOffice's new Community Edition. All that and so much more coming up on this week's episode of Twill, your weekly source for Linux GNUs. So I just have a few quick things that I want to let you know about before we get into the show. First of all, if you didn't know, there's a segment index in the description and also a chapter bookmarks for the podcast version so you can easily jump to particular topics that you find interesting, uh, then go back to watch the rest of the show. Of course, you should watch it all and you can then just pick the order you want to watch it in. But of course, you know, whole thing, whole thing. Also, this weekend on Destination Linux, we are interviewing Gerald Pfeiffer from SUSE and OpenSUSE. So be sure to join us for the live stream of this week's episode of Destination Linux on Sunday, February 7th at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC at dlnlive.com. Up first in the show this week, we have a lot of Ubuntu news to get through, so we're going to start with the Ubuntu 20.04.2 release. This is a point release for the LTS from 20.04. This has uh, some improvements for packages and some rebuilds of the ISOs to include those improvements. Uh, one of these big improvements is the uh, hardware enablement stack has been uh, bumped up to have uh, new versions of the Linux kernel and also Mesa drivers. So the Linux kernel goes from 5.4 to 5.8. The Mesa drivers are now also upgraded to 20.2. Dot six, and this means there will be better support for newer hardware. And if you aren't familiar with the hardware enablement stack or the HWE, then the brief overview of that is that the HWE allows Ubuntu to take work from newer releases and backport them into the LTS version. So for example, the update for the Linux kernel 5.8 is from the 20.10 release of Ubuntu, and now that can be backported to the LTS version of 20.04, or in this case, 20.04.2. Now, this is a really good thing overall because it means that hardware support for the LTS releases are not locked to older kernels like it used to be, but it does still mean that there's a six-month waiting period for this hardware support to be added, so it's not necessarily an ideal period of time, but it is much better than two years, so there's that. Uh, also, next, we're going to talk about some big news that happened with Ubuntu. Uh, they announced that they're going to be making a new installer for their platform. So the Ubuntu desktop lead, Martin Wimpress, announced on the Ubuntu Discourse Forum that they are creating a new installer for the platform. Uh, and also the next day, Martin announced that he's going to be leaving Canonical on his Twitter account. Uh, so that's interesting. Is this a sign based on the response from the new installer? No, because it takes a lot longer than a day to get a new job and stuff like that. So it's probably not related at all, but it is interesting. And he did, and I did want to clarify that he did say that on his tweet that he will continue to uh, work on and lead the Ubuntu Mate uh, project. So that's the Ubuntu flavor that Martin founded. So for those who are using it or wondering if he's still going to be associated, he will be. So there you go. And also best of luck to Martin in his new position and don't be a stranger. Uh, I mean, it's not like 
you're leaving a job at Canonical means you can't be a part of the community, but, you know, there you go. See you around. Uh, anyway, back to the installer topic. So uh, to quote from the uh, forum thread, it says that the current Ubuntu desktop installer Ubiquity dates back to 2006. While still functional, Ubiquity has, hasn't seen significant feature developments for some years, and due to its legacy, it's becoming cumbersome to maintain. Meanwhile, a new installer for Ubuntu Server has been developed called Subiquity. Now, I think it does make sense that they want to consolidate to a single code base for their installer, but there is a slight bit of a controversy around this decision because this new installer will be using Flutter for the UI. And Flutter is an open source UI software development kit created by Google. Now, it's not necessarily the Google part that makes it controversial, so, but it is, it is, I'll get to that in a second. So first of all, why do they choose Flutter? We'll go, we'll go back to the forum, uh, the forum thread. I'll give you another quote from that thread. It's that they say that we have evaluated existing desktop installer projects and toolkits. Our goal is to deliver a consistent installer experience across the Ubuntu project portfolio. Flutter is a great open source technology to deliver highly optimized desktop applications for Linux. So that's the reason they chose Flutter. The reason why it's uh, controversial is, well... There are some reports saying that Flutter only works as snaps, and you can technically have some applications using Flutter in other things like Flatpak, but that requires packaging the entire like Flutter toolkit for support, and it's, though it's not exactly the same. Uh, and Flutter is arguably a good choice, and I don't deny that, but there are some concerns that the installer will only be usable via snaps, making it a snap-only installer. So for those for distros who want to maybe use that, like other distributions use Ubiquity as their installer, and in this case, if they don't want to use snaps, then they wouldn't be able to use this installer. Now, this is just a, a... It's basically like a current situation. It is possible that Flutter could work on uh, Linux in terms of other formats, but right now it is currently not being packaged for uh, the Linux uh, platform outside of snaps. So that's why it's it's like it's kind of a snap only thing, but also not exactly. It's just the fact that they're using Flutter as the toolkit. So there you go. That's the issue that some have with this announcement, but I'll leave it to you to decide whether you land on this pro this subject. You know, you, that's up to you. Uh, there is one new feature that is announced for this installer, though, which is very cool, and that is a new repair option. This will give the user the option to reinstall all of the installed software without touching documents or settings, and that is very cool. Every distro should have something like that to make it easier for people to kind of like do a reset. That's a really cool idea. Uh, they also say that the Ubiquity installer will remain available in the Ubuntu archives for official flavors, remixes, and derivatives to use if they want to. But that will eventually be an issue probably because if no one is working on it, then no one's maintaining it. So, you know, if even though it's in the official archive, it's not really that helpful in the long term. Though for now, it does make it possible for people to still uh, ship it for their flavors or remixes or whatever. So what's going to happen with the distros that use Ubuntu as a base? Well, there are a couple of options, or a few options anyway. They could continue to use Ubiquity, or they could fork Ubiquity, Ubiquity and, make it, and keep going with a, this, a new version of it. Or they could adopt this new installer, perhaps, maybe. Uh, or they could switch to Calamari's. And some flavors have already switched to Calamari's, like Lubuntu, for example. Though they switched to Calamari's many versions ago, not related to this particular decision. They just were already doing it anyway. So 
All we can do right now is wait and see what happens. But before we move on from the Ubuntu topic, I wanted to highlight something I think needs some attention, and that is the art style of Sylvia Ritter. So Sylvia creates uh, unique pieces of art inspired by the code name of the Ubuntu releases for every release. And the code name for 21.04 is Hirsute Hippo. For those not familiar, Hirsute means covered in hair. For some reason, they chose that. Somehow, Sylvia made something beautiful out of that code name, and I wanted to show you in the show, and here it is. So we have the uh, Hirsute Hippo piece of art. Sylvia also made a another example that I thought I wanted I want to show, which is the Groovy Gorilla art piece, as well as the Disco Dingo. So really quick, we're going to show you the uh, Groovy Gorilla, and then the Disco Dingo. Which I have to say, the Disco Dingo is my favorite one. It's a great code name in general. It's a fun code name. Groovy Gorilla is a is a good code name as well. But I think Disco Dingo is like the best one they've had in a long time. And this piece of art is really cool. I want to have a wallpaper for it because it's just not. It's not even relevant to what I use. I don't even use Ubuntu, but it's such a good piece of art. I wanted to kind of highlight it on the show. And maybe also, if you're taking requests, Sylvia, uh, I'd like to request you make an. Of, uh, make one of your art pieces for an old Fedora release, uh, specifically Fedora 17, which was codenamed Beefy Miracle. Yes, Beefy Miracle. I know that's ridiculous, but that's also why it's awesome and why I would like for you to make it an art piece. You know, it's you know, just if you if you have some free time on your hands and you're interested, there you go, Beefy Miracle for Fedora 17, and. Uh, uh, this also kind of makes me a little bit more disappointed that they didn't choose Hipster Hamster because that would have been so great to see what Sylvie would have come up with in terms of doing that one. So anyway, let's move on to the next topic. You can find links for everything that I've talked about in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the beta release for Alma Linux. Alma Linux is the rail rebuild being made by the company Cloud Linux. This is a one-to-one -one binary compatible fork of Rail 8, and this is a beta release, so it is ready for testing, but not quite ready for use in production. Alma Linux is expected to have support until at least 2029, uh, as CentOS 8 was originally going to be. Uh, Cloud Linux is backing the project with a $1 million annual sponsorship, which is really cool, and this is great news for those looking for an alternative to CentOS who don't want to use CentOS Stream or the new free rail options for whatever reason. And there are other projects being made for this kind of rebuild as well, but I think Cloud Linux is offering is is very, very interesting because Cloud Linux has kind of already been doing this sort of thing for like 10 years with their product. So this explains how they were able to quickly produce something like for a beta release for Alma Linux, whereas other projects are still in the uh, project construction stage and that sort of thing. It's also not just a company making a rebuild. They made a commitment to make this a community-driven initiative, so now they're asking for assistance with testing, documentation, support, and planning for the roadmap of the project. And Cloud Linux says that they will work closely with bug tickets to further develop Alma Linux, so these bug reports will be reviewed and prioritized by the engineering team, and the engineering team also gathered uh, some stuff from the community for like frequently asked questions and stuff like that, which they published on a wiki page, so you can check that out if you want to. Uh, it's really cool that this is uh, already available because they basically had like two and a half, or one, no, it was one and a half months. I guess it was kind of, no, no, almost two months. There we go. Almost two months. And they already have 
their first beta for Alma Linux ready to go, which is really cool. So if you'd like some more information about Alma Linux, then check out the links in the show notes below. So the new year has arrived, and that means summer is right around the corner. I mean, not really. That's still quite a bit away. But it does mean that the process to be part of the Google Summer of Code has begun. This year is going to be a bit different, though. Uh, Google Summer of Code has been happening for the past 16 years and has made a pretty big impact, actually. Uh, 715 open source organizations have participated in the Google Summer of Code, plus it has included over 16,000 student developers from over like 110 countries and stuff like that. So it's it's had a big significant impact. So it, that's not too shabby. However, this year there will be some changes that have people worried about the value of participating in the Google Summer of Code. There are two changes in particular that are problematic. Google said that the pandemic is straining people's time, so they've limited the projects to only 175 hours over a 10-week period. This is half of the amount of hours typically, which is normally 350 hours. This seems like a scapegoat to save money because for a lot of people, the opposite is true. People have more time on their hands because of the pandemic. Now, I'm not saying Google can't or shouldn't make this change. They don't even have to do this program at all. It's their choice to do it. But this reasoning seems a bit disingenuous, really. Uh, Some companies are finding this to be a frustrating move because it reduces how large the projects can be as a part of the Google Summer of Code. And Google has also cut the payout to students in half due to this change in the amount of hours. So technically, they didn't change how much they were getting, but they did change how many hours. Therefore, they cut it in half as well. And this is leading to speculation that some students may look for alternatives like internships and that sort of stuff instead of using doing being a part of the Google Summer of Code. And the Xorg Foundation is a part of the Google Summer of Code almost every year, working on Mesa, Wayland, and other projects as well. However, due to the change, the board is deciding whether or not to participate this year. So they're they're still considering their options. And this kind of discussion is happening in many organizations this year. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this year's Google Summer of Code. But for now, if you'd like to learn more about the Google Summer of Code or maybe even participate yourself as a student or a mentor, then you can find links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's app platform service is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. You can use a simple, intuitive, and visually rich experience to rapidly build, deploy, and manage, as well as scale apps. And you can also have support for a variety of different programming languages like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby. It also has support for static sites, Docker, and container images. And it has the it offers you high scalability and zero infrastructure management. But what does that mean exactly? Well, simply point, point you your GitHub repository or your GitLab repository and let the app platform do all the heavy lifting for you. It handles the infrastructure like app runtimes and dependencies so that you can push code to your to production in just a few clicks. It also helps you with securing your apps because they create, manage, and renew your SSL certificates as well as protect your apps from DDoS attacks. You can run code with little to no customization because the app platform uses open cloud-native standards and automatically analyzes your code, creates containers, and runs them on Kubernetes clusters. And as a listener of the This Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free, well, actually better than free, because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. Again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform service. And 
want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. In episode 134 of Twill, we talked about a new tablet-based distribution that is being worked on called JingOS. This week, JingOS announced the first preview version of their distro, and this is made available as JingOS 0.6. This release is not currently stable and lacks some basic functionality, but for those with a Surface Pro 6 or a Huawei MateBook 14, this might be something to give a shot. Uh, last time we discussed JingOS, not much was known about the technical aspects of the distro other than it was based on Ubuntu. However, however, we know more about it now. And something really caught my attention. Because in addition to being based on Ubuntu 20.04, it is using KDE Frameworks 5.75 and Plasma Mobile 5.20. When I first saw this, it was very, very exciting to me because instead of a distro making things from scratch, like is often done with these new unique types of distros, which cause you know, some fragmentation issues, seeing JingOS decide to use the KDE stack and the KDE Plasma Mobile to make their in interface, that is a very exciting thing. I was really happy to see that. However that apparently is only going to be temporary because on their forum post for the announcement of this, uh, you know, kind of beta release, they say that they will, they, they quote from the forum post says, we will replace the framework from Plasma Mobile to JDE or the Jing desktop environment later this year. Maybe JDE is based on Plasma. I don't know. I'm not sure, like, how can you, you know, quickly make your own desktop environment and switch the toolkits that much? So it's going to be somewhat re related in some way. I don't know. It, it, if Maybe it's only an offshoot that work can be done on it and can still be valuable to the KDE stack in some way. You know, fingers crossed. That'd be great. Um, also, there is another JDE, so that might be a little bit of a name collision at some point. But, you know, there's that. I am still interested in trying out the iPadOS style UI because uh, it also has like some a lot of we talked about it in the in episode 134 how they put some they're putting effort into multi-touch gestures for the screen and the and trackpad when put onto a laptop and that sort of stuff uh, and as well as some other things that I want to try out for this particular distribution. And they do say that in the future that a more stable version of JingOS is stated to be available uh, to uh, download at the end of March. And there's also plans for a JingPad tablet device that it would be launched. And there are reports about this uh, particular device being a part of a crowdfunding campaign. But they haven't announced that specifically, uh, but this was a ARM-based tablet that will come preloaded with JingOS, the JingPad. And if you want to download the JingOS uh, initial release, then you will need to join their mailing list to get the download. And if you want to learn more about the distro, I'll have links to get more info about it in the show notes below. Solus has announced the latest release of their distribution with version 4.2. This release delivers new desktop environment updates, updates to the software stacks, and also hardware enablement updates as well. This ships the Linux kernel 5.10.12, providing new hardware support, including uh, AMD Ryzen 5th Gen, such as the 5600X to the 5950X, uh, Intel Comet Lake support, such as the i9-10850K, beautiful naming scheme there, Intel. Uh, and also, that has updated for Mesa packages to 20.3.3, which introduces uh, support for new GPUs. It also has support for Vulkan 1.2 API, and the ACO shader compilation is now enabled by default for the RADV Vulkan driver. And for those who may not have heard of Solus, you may be wondering, what is Solus? Well, Solus is an independent distribution, which means it's not a derivative or a fork of any other distro. It uses a package manager called EOPKG, which is 
is a fork of the PySci package manager. I think you're supposed to say it like that. Anyway, that's the one used in Pardis, uh, but it has been extensively modified so it is not compatible with the PySci anymore. And Solus is also working on replacing the EOPKG with a new package manager called Sol, but I'm not sure what the status of that is at the moment. Solus is the upstream for the Budgie desktop as well. So if you have used the Ubuntu flavor Ubuntu Budgie, but didn't know who made Budgie, well, now you do. Uh, Solus is a very interesting distribution and it has an insane boot speed, which is not typically notable for distributions really, but honestly, it's kind of shocking how fast Solus Budgie boots. So if you haven't tried that out and you want to know what I mean, you know, give it a shot. Uh, and now I should let you know that Solus does have a pretty limited amount of packages that it ships in their repositories compared to other distributions, but they address this with support for flat packs and also snaps, I think. Uh, oh, and by the way, if you want to check out Solus but want something other than Budgie, they also have additions for KDE Plasma, Mate, and Gnome, so those are there for you as well. And if you'd like to learn more about Solus Distro and perhaps give it a try for yourself, you'll find links in the show notes. Are you interested in running Arch Linux for some reason? Do you want to not spend hours of installing the distro? Then you're in luck. For just four easy payments of absolutely nothing, you can get an Arch-compatible system running with Endeavor OS. So Endeavor OS 2021.02.03, their version system is based on the date that they release it, so there you go. Uh, the announcement states that, they're, that compared to the September release, this ISO is a major leap forward on the package versions. Notably, they've made updates to the Linux kernel, Mesa drivers, NVIDIA drivers, uh, the Calamari's installer, and much more. And speaking of the Calamari's installer, it now offers a choice between a swap file and a traditional swap partition, which is very cool because a swap file is much more interesting an option than it used to be. Swap partitions are rather rigid, whereas a swap file is pretty flexible in how you do it. It's, it's kind of more complicated to kind of to discuss in this particular episode, but if you want more information about this topic, let me know in the comments below and I'll make a video on it and perhaps an article on front page Linux. Moving on. Another cool update is the live ISO environment for the installation media has been updated to XFCE 4.16. XFCE 4.16 is not actually officially released yet, but why wait? I agree. Might as well. <laughs> anyway, there's also another new option in the uh, welcome tool that has a ability to let advanced users add extra packages during the installation. And this is the uh, package or P PKG list option variable, which is really, really cool, making, making it easier for you to you know, rather than having to do it after the fact, when you install the system, you can just add this new package that you want to this and be able to do it during installation, which is very, very cool. They also have uh, some new setups for the i3 window manager, and they're working on two wind new window manager projects being uh, possibly included in a future releases for Sway and BSPWM. And also, I mentioned how the package list allows you to add extra packages uh, during install, but wouldn't it be cool if you could also have custom configs for your window manager or your desktop environment? Well, that is also on the roadmap as well. So that is very exciting. I can't wait to try that out. It's really cool. So you can be able to have custom configurations for 
uh, theoretically, whichever desktop environment you want, and then be able to automatically load them as you install the distro, which is very cool because in theory, you could also share those customizations with other people to try out your version or your setup for that particular DE. Very, very cool. If you want to learn more about this uh, latest release of Endeavor OS or maybe get started with your first payment of absolutely nothing, well, the phone lines are down right now or non-existent, but there are links in the show notes so you can check those out. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. A password manager is software that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. How does it do this? Well, securing your online accounts is very important because the best security practice for passwords is to have a different password for every account on every website that you sign up to. And sure, that makes sense as a policy, but without a password manager, that is a very painful thing to do. Bitwarden solves this by providing tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to. You can access your data across multiple types of devices like your web browser, your uh, mobile apps, a desktop application, or even on the command line if you want to. Uh, Bitwarden also seals your private data with end-to-end encrypted before it ever leaves your devices so you know that you are the only person with access to your data. But maybe, for example, you would want to have people get access to it in like an emergency situation, so they created a new process called the emergency access feature, which is really awesome because it means that you can let give access to people who, you know, and under, under certain circumstances would need to have access to your stuff. You can now do that, which is really, really cool. They also added biometrics features, which is really cool. So like uh, fingerprint scanning, uh, uh, face recognition, stuff like that. And they're also adding even more. So really awesome. Bitwarden is the password manager that I use and trust because in addition to all of these great features, it is also 100% open source software. That's right, 100% open source, which means the features and security of their infrastructure can be vetted and improved by the community. And they don't just stop there. They also bring in third-party security firms to audit their code to make sure it is as safe as possible. So go to bitwarden.com DLN to get started with your free account. But I think you want to check out the premium account anyway because the the premium account gives you a lot of cool extra stuff like the one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords or TOTP. It also has a priority customer service available there. And you get all of this for less than a dollar per month. That's right, less than a dollar per month. So make the smart move like many from the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. This lets you get peace of mind for your passwords and other sensitive data while also supporting a company that truly gets open source. Sign up for their, their $10 a year. That's right, $10 a year, less than a dollar per month premium account to let them know that you appreciate them supporting open source and supporting the This Week in Linux podcast. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. UbiPorts announced this week there is a new Ubuntu Touch Devices website. Now, this doesn't seem like it'd be a a big deal, I'm sure you probably are thinking, but this is actually great news because it makes it easier to find out if your device is compatible with Ubuntu Touch, and if not, what exactly is missing. UbiPorts states that the site's primary goal is to answer the very frequently asked question of, can I install Ubuntu Touch on my device? And that is a very frequently asked question, one I've heard the most when I talk about Ubuntu Touch, and it's really great that they're making this new update to the website to be able to find out much more easily whether or not it's supported and what is missing. So 
Maybe, for example, if a feature is not there, but you still are okay with it not being there, you could flash it onto your device anyway. And it's really nice to see this new website having that specific detail so that you can make that decision for yourself, which is really cool. They have had a device maturity scoring system to explain you know, how it worked and what, it, how, what was supported. But it was still rather confusing for the average user to know what exactly that meant. And previously, that score just meant that the device porter decided that that's what they think the score would be and how like what they didn't really give you the specifics of how that score was derived. Now, the score is derived by calculating based on whether or not a feature is marked as working or not working. So now you can actually have a structure of seeing what is working, what isn't on each device, on each device page, and that is fantastic. There's also now a place for the porters to put external links so people can get in contact with the porters on devices for maybe testing, documentation, or just whatever. The site is also able to determine independently whether a device is supported by the UbiPorts installer, which is really cool. So let's talk about what the future holds for this new site. It's already a really nice thing that they've improved the way that decide uh, for yourself whether or not you want to put it on your device because you have more information. But I'm going to take out my crystal ball and predict the future. And by crystal ball, I mean their announced roadmap. So they say that the maturity score will continue to be improved for example possibly having a feature and every feature assign a unique weight value so it can indicate how much a particular feature affects the overall maturity for the support of the device they also are considering a half credit system for features that work but not necessarily great so that's really cool because if they don't work right like as fully then they are just marked as not working whereas some things will work most of the time in some devices, you know, there could be that kind of an issue. And if you want to check out the latest website to see how the Ubuntu Touch new website works and if it, see if it supports your device, uh, then check the links in the show notes. And also, if you want to provide uh, user feedback on the new site, they are looking for that as well. So links in the show notes. LibreOffice is in the news this week because they announced a new version of LibreOffice with 7.1, and it comes with a new community label. So a lot of people are wondering, what's the difference between the Community Edition and the Enterprise Edition? Well, the Enterprise Edition allows companies to get long-term support options, professional assistance, custom features, and other benefits, including SLAs, which means service level agreements. What does this mean for the Community Edition exactly? Though? What does this change? Well, technically, nothing. It doesn't change nothing about any about the code or how it already works. They're just rebranding it with a community-supported version to have the Community Edition label. So they say in the quote for the blog post that the community label underlines the fact that the software is not targeted at enterprises and is not optimized for their support needs. And we talked about this edition label change coming in episode 109 of Twill, though at the time it was going to be called Personal Edition, and I think the change to Community Edition is, is a better choice. So the TLDR, and for those who don't know what that means, is too long, didn't read, uh, companies that want specific support in LibreOffice should use the Enterprise version and pay for it, and everyone else use the Community Edition. And 
In addition to this label change, there are also some new features to talk about in this release. So 7.1 introduces uh, ScriptForge Libraries, which is an extensible, robust collection of macro scripting resources for LibreOffice. This is very cool because one of the things that people praise Microsoft Office Suite for is all the macros. And this makes it possible to greatly improve the usability for advanced users in LibreOffice, which is awesome. And a new dialogue that's also been added that lets you select the user interface. They refer to it as flavor, but it's just basically customizing the UI and how it works and that sort of stuff really much more easily. So that's really cool. And a new additions dialogue has also been added that lets you search, download, and install extensions with a single click. Very, very nice. And they also added better interop interoperability with Microsoft's document formats like DocX, XLSX, and PPTX as well as some others. Uh, there's also a lot of other things. I'll, If you want to check out the full list of the changelog, I'll have a link in the show notes below to check that out, as well as a link for the download for 7.1 if you want to check that out as well. All of that in the show notes. So KDE announced a big application suite update for with bug fixes and improvements across a bunch of their various applications. And this update is for uh, the release of 20.12.2. And this sees a lot of improvements to Spectacle, Gwynview, Caden Live, Dolphin, uh, Elisa Music Player. Elisa? Elisa? I'm not sure. One of those, Music Player. Uh, for example, the Music Player has uh, the ability to add radio streams now. And Dolphin adds a new feature for keyboard shortcut for uh copying a file's path to your clipboard, which is really nice and something I will definitely be using. And also one of the highlights I wanted to cover is the uh, release and launch of Congress. So Congress with a K, of course. Uh, Congress 1.0 is a conference timetable guide app. It's launched just in time for Faustin, which is happening this weekend. And it can be used to browse the timetable of a conference. You can favorite important talks that you can check out later. Also, you can adjust the times to your local time zone, and so much more. And in terms of availability, it, it since it's brand new, it might be in some distros and it might not be in yours, uh, but it is available as a flat pack, so you can check that out if you want to. And there's also work to make it have support for mobile devices like uh, Pine phones running Plasma Mobile, or Android users can be able to get it from F-Droid and that sort of stuff. They are working on that, which is really nice. And I know there are a lot of people who avoid KDE apps because they they have this uh, weird myth that they heard about the cute toolkit not having support due to some weird mixing of the toolkits with GTK and that sort of stuff. But just to clarify that subject, that is total and utter nonsense. What I when I first started using Linux. It was kind of true because that was the late 90s and there was a lot of weird stuff with computers in general back then. However, now that GTK versus Qt thing, this is not a problem. And it hasn't been an issue for many, many years, well over a decade, in fact. So if you have been wanting to try some stuff from KDE but were hesitant to do so because of this terrible myth about compatibility, well, now you know. And if you do... You want to learn more about these applications and check them out for yourself and maybe give it a try for the first uh, first attempt. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes below for the new releases for the KDE app suite. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. 
If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and just hang out every week after the show. You can also order the Linux Everywhere t-shirt by going to DLN Store at dlnstore.com. You can check out all of that, including the shirt I'm wearing now, which is the This Week in Linux t-shirt. All of that is available at dlnstore.com. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the Destination Linux network. Especially, reminder, Destination Linux next episode that is happening. Technically, I'm recording this episode on Saturday, and tomorrow on Sunday, we will be having an interview with uh, Gerald Pfeiffer from SUSE and OpenSUSE, and that'll be really awesome. You don't want to miss that. And also, just a reminder, this show is streamed live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each week by going to dlnlive.com. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with the Destination Linux Network, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux, and I'll see you next week for your weekly source of Linux news.